My name is Chris Watkins. I've been in Beijing. This is the start of our 10th year, officially, I think, today. Um, don't know if we'll be here another 10. Lord willing, we'll see what happens. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? What is that lingering doubt when you're laying in bed at night or when you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, whether it's time of trouble or great times, what is that question or those questions that are lingering in your mind? What are those questions that keep you from denying yourself and taking up the cross and following him? What are the questions that your friends ask you that scare you to death? The ones that they hit you with at a dinner party and you're like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm scared to death. What are the questions that make you doubt this God you say you follow? So I'd like to ask, what are the, someone just throw out a couple questions. What is the biggest question you've got right now? If God was standing here right there and you could ask him a question, what would it be? Quickly, we only have 30 minutes. How could you create me when you knew I would nail you to the cross? What else? Yeah. What is your plan? Great. Why do you let bad things happen to what kind of people? Good people. We don't care if bad things happen to bad people. They deserve it. Right? What else? Any other questions? What really keeps you awake at night? Yeah, when will you return? If you're real, if this whole thing isn't a myth, and you say you're coming back, when's it going to happen? Many people have predicted it, and none of them have gotten it right so far. So they're batting zero so far. I actually know people that predicted it. One was 1984. They missed it by at least uh, 30, or, 30 or so years so far. Doubt is not a bad thing. Doubt is a bridge to truth. I heard this about 10 or 12 years ago, and it made complete sense to me, because every time in my mind when I have a question about what it is that I believe, I go through the logic map in my mind that I've been trained and studied to learn. But the doubt always leads me back to the truth of who it is that I claim to follow. Now, when we, we should be encouraging ourselves to explore that doubt because these are the same questions that everyone around us has. Every single person has the same questions. If you doubt it, just ask a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 7-year-old, and they ask the same questions that the 35-year-old asks. But they do it more simply. They do it without some of the pontification and judgmentalness that comes with the question. Every person that has ever been born has asked questions around these four areas of origin, where did I come from, meaning, what is the purpose of life, morality, what is right and wrong, and who gets to define it, and destiny, what happens when this thing ends. Every worldview, every religion, every person attempts to answer these four questions. And all the other little questions that we've got all fit under these four in some way, shape, or form. The eternal purpose of God is, covers the answers to all these questions. And it's more than just line-item questions of intellect. It's about a story. The Bible is a story of bringing us home back to relationship with the Father. Imagine we're all a bunch of cut roses. I talked about a rose uh, a couple months ago. 
that apart from the vine, the rose can't grow. Imagine, we are all cut roses. Although we look alive, we're dead. So you take a a rose that's been cut and a rose that hasn't been cut, and you cover the bottom. Do they look the same? Of course they look the same. They both look beautiful. They smell sweet. But one's dead and one's alive. Okay, we're all a bunch of cut roses. The harvest that God is talking about is not necessarily a harvest like we imagine. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit because it is, the, the word harvest has so many different, both positive and negative meanings in our minds. We've got to make sure that we think about it from God's perspective. Rick talked about today and last week that every single person has hitched themselves to something. We all abide in something. The question is, what is it? Everybody abides in something. Even the people that say, I don't have a faith system. I don't follow anything. I'm, I'm an atheist. Well, guess what? They're abiding in their atheism. Every single person does this. What we all want is we all want to go home. Every person here, most people here, are outside of where they're from. When we talk about, when are you going home? When are you going to return home? There's this longing in each one of us to return home. There's a, there's a hole that God put in every one of our hearts for the real home. Not the home of Columbus, Ohio for me and my wife. But for our heavenly home. The home he's going to actually bring back down here when he sets up the new heavens and the new earth. I'd like to read John chapter 4. If you could put up the slide, please. Do not say four more months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper will be glad together. From the beginning of time, God has created us for relationship with him. He's created us for a relationship with each other and a family. It's not an individual faith. It's a communal faith. It's individual in our response to his love, but it's communal in him drawing us together as a, as a body. Now, when he's talking about a harvest, I have to ask myself, do I really believe this stuff? As Ian was talking earlier, I don't have a heart for the harvest. I see these miserable people I have to interact with every day, whether it be the herds or the individual that's going after me at work, the client that goes back on the contract, the good friend who turns his back on me in a time of need. How in the world could we ever have compassion for people like that? How could we ever have compassion for someone? Jesus is going to talk about this in the next passage. But when he talks about the harvest, there's three principles that we want to talk about today and next week. The first one is that the harvest begins with one person at a time. It's not about the combine in the field that's sucking up thousands of grains of wheat for the harvest. But it's a harvest of one person at a time. Each person matters to God. It's about a principle that the process of someone coming to faith is both a process that God is responsible for the results. I am not responsible for bringing somebody to the Lord. I get to be called to be a part of that process. So it's a process, and our king is responsible for the results. He's the Lord of the harvest, not us. And that every single person has three barriers to the king, to this grafted-in rose. The first one is emotional. All the bad stuff that Christians have done to them. All the bad things happened to their life. 
All the destruction, all the despair, everything they see, all those people that are starving, all those people that have been hurt, murder, rape, all the things that make us disgusted are emotional barriers to a God. Because how could a good God allow those things to happen? We also have intellectual barriers. If I'm a scientist, I believe evolution created everything. How could we believe in something we can't see created this entire complex universe? It's crazy. How could you believe the Bible after 2,000 years is really the real thing that was written then? Come on. There's no way. So we have intellectual barriers. And then ultimately, we have the, what's called a volitional barrier, the barrier of the will. Simply put, I want to be God. And I don't want someone else to tell me what it takes to be considered good, to be considered accepted. If you go to the next slide, please. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. This is the passage Ian was talking about. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Next slide, please. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest and send out workers into his harvest field. good friend of mine, about two or three months ago, we were uh, meeting downtown in my office, and he walks in, 7 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, just white as a ghost. Chinese, uh, grew up in Thailand, very complex family life, son of nine children, uh, three mothers in the house, Uh, the the husband had three wives, Um, so he grew in this very complex family life. But he was describing to me his utter despair that morning because he had no compassion. He had talked to his family the night before. The one mother is into witchcraft, has constantly casting spells over the husband, the father. And he says, as I'm hearing the story, I got nothing. I got nothing in my heart. Why am I not heartbroken? Why am I not desperate for my parents and what they're experiencing? And it just hit me. I was like, wow. That's the way we're like each day when we walk around this life, each moment. Every coffee shop we walk into, every interaction we have in our work, in our home, in our school. We lack compassion. Now, compassion is not something you just muster up. We all know that. Compassion is a result of something that the Lord does within us. And I'm going to submit to you some ideas of why I think that is and see, uh, I I don't expect you to believe what I'm going to talk about, but I ask you to at least explore and think about it. If we're going to have the heart of the Father, we have to ask Him for His heart. If we're going to have the eyes of the Father, we have to ask Him for His eyes. Okay? I need His glasses to be able to see people. Now, most of us live our Christian life as if it's a life with a mirror. We're constantly talking about ourselves and our own issues. We're looking at ourselves in that mirror. We're wondering about all the problems that we've got. It's so me-focused that how am I supposed to even begin to look at these people around here? In fact, my family, we never met a mirror we didn't love. I come from four brothers and a sister. The four brothers spent more time in front of that mirror than uh, my sister did. We did more poses and 
bicep shots you could ever imagine. We love the mirror. Even to this day, it's hard for me to walk by a mirror without looking in it. Now, it's harder when you're 46 because there's other things hanging around here that you don't like to see. So you have to put your arms you know, over that to cover it up. But that's what we are like with our faith so often when we're just constantly me, me, me looking in the mirror. And I would say what I've discovered comes in the, in the honesty of a, a guy I was having, uh, we had a party for my office a couple weeks ago. And one of the guys, he's, he's searching, deeply searching. He's been hurt, he's troubled, and he's at this point now where he's beginning to understand this thing, grace. And it's so overwhelming for him because he has so much anger and, and hatred and hurt inside him from what's been done to him. And he says, Chris, how can you have compassion because he's, what he's talking about is he realizes that if he does accept this gift, that means there'll be a giving away of that gift to someone else. He actually can actually intellectually understand that. And, he's, and it's a barrier for him. He's saying, I don't believe I can love these people. They're so unlovable. And I said, I know. I know. And we talked about the vine, and apart from the vine, you can't love anybody. Only if the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart, softens your heart, breaks open your soul to love people, could you begin to love? And there was like a, a moment where I could see, it was like the Lord did something. He, he's like, oh. You know, and he went quiet and we didn't talk the rest of the night. But it was one little seed, one little sowing in his life. Now when we talk about the harvest, this, uh, I had this imported from uh, the south of France, from Bordeaux, my brother's in the wine industry, and I asked him to bring this back that, you know, we really wanted a great grapevine. So this is Actually, the same vine that created the 1980 Chateau Lafitte uh, wine, which is one of the most expensive bottles in the world. Um, and if you believe that, then you shouldn't believe the rest of what I'm about to say. Now, this, came, this came from next door. How we found a, a grapevine is amazing, uh, but we found a grapevine. But when I think of the harvest, I've always thought of, like I said earlier, the big combine, the John Deere combine rolling through the fields. I'm from Ohio, you know, sucking up all the wheat. And doing whatever it does to bring out, you know, I'm not a farmer, so I don't understand how even the combine works. But that's what I think of when I think of a harvest. But when I watched this movie, Red Obsession, which is the, uh, a documentary on the obsession of China on the wine industry. And they show actually what the harvest looks like in Bordeaux. Is lots of individual people walking through a field, examining every single grape, looking at every single branch... Understanding whether that grape is ready for the harvest. And it hit me. I'm like, that's, that's actually what it feels like to be a worker in Beijing in this harvest field. Because Beijing is our harvest field, everybody. This is the field that we're to go into when he says, beseech the Lord of the harvest to go into the field. We're in the field. We're there. He's asking us to look for other people to join arms together, to link together, the people in this body here, the people throughout Beijing, to link together, to go into the harvest field, one by one, but together. It wasn't one person in this giant field, it was hundreds of people, but going to each and every branch, each and every grape, examine it before it was, to make sure it was ready for the harvest. That person's doing the harvest actually did none of the work, the rain, the sowing, all this work was already done. They're there just to let it fall off the limb into their hands, into the basket, and then take it to the rest of the, the harvest that's put in. And I, it just struck me, that's what it feels like. Because you know what? That's what it feels like to, to minister, to, to go and minister to people. Because you could spend years with somebody. 
years and years and years, and it seems like there's no life. It's not, there's nothing ready. And it's not you to judge. We're part of a process. If I don't think I'm part of a process and God's response for the results, I'm going to yank that thing off too early. And guess what? I'm going to be part of the reason why they don't want to follow God because I'm going to become the emotional barrier because they're my agenda. They're my agenda. So the harvest is not big gatherings of things. It's us working together in the field day by day, moment by moment, a part of his process that we get to be a part of. I find when we think of it that way, it's not like what many of us grew up with, thinking of what evangelism is. Evangelism almost is a dirty word, particularly in North America. Don't you dare try to push your agenda and your thoughts of the eternal things on someone else. But if you think about relationship and love, it takes on a totally different meaning. Uh, Next slide, please. Oh, you can skip that one. There's three different passages. Jesus was preparing these guys for, he was getting ready to leave them, so he's preparing them. Luke 14 talks about counting the cost. At the end of Luke 14, Jesus makes very bold claims about what it means to follow him. He says, if you're going to follow me, basically every other relationship has to look like hatred compared to your love for me. You've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Then he goes immediately into Luke 15, where he talks about the three lost things. A lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And then in Luke 16, he talks about how do you invest the resources, the shrewdness of living in this world, in this city of Beijing. How are you going to use the mammon, the things that he's entrusted to, your time, your talent, your treasure, for his purposes? So if we look at Luke 15, uh, you can go to the next slide. Uh, follow on after that. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, sets up this parable in an incredible way. So we had the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep. You've got to think of the audience. We have the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So we had the irreligious and the religious, Keller says. This is actually the story. It's not it's the parable, but the story is who's he talking to? He's talking to us, religious people, and he's talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, which is also us, if we understand where we came from. So he goes through and he sets up this parable and he really allows us to see, as he goes through the story, that there's a younger brother that is usually the message that's preached. But rarely do we hear about the older brother. The younger brother represents the guy that tries to you know, go find life through self-discovery and find happiness that way. The older brother is the guy that goes and finds happiness through moral uh, moral character and doing good things and being a good religious boy. That's how they both got their identity. The younger brother we can all associate with, in many cases, some particularly me, because I saw my life very clearly. I saw God pursuing me at every aspect of my life, from the time I was a young kid to my brother sharing the four spiritual laws with me, because uh, he was part of Campus Crusade. He shared with me when I'm in fifth grade. No other influence. High school another person sharing with me through FCA, little influence, some. I became a little bit of an older brother through, through that time. And then 10 years of younger brother, doing whatever I wanted to do, seeking whatever I could from the world to fill the hole in my heart. But God, in this story, what's amazing about the story of the, the two lost sons, the parable of the two lost sons, 
is the pursuit of the father of both. When the father runs to the son, it says he had compassion on him. He had compassion. The compassion was a prerequisite before he could run. He had to have the heart to want to pursue somebody. We have to have the heart of compassion before we can begin to pursue people and to serve them. If we're doing it out of duty, out of religious moral responsibility, it will fall flat. People will smell it from a mile away. They'll, they'll smell that we're there our agenda. So the father's love was so unconditional, so passionate, so thorough. He ran to his son, restored his son, placed the cloak on him, put the ring on his finger, and put the sandals on his feet. Complete restoration had nothing to do with what the son had done. The older brother's angry, mad, upset, because he's done all the right things all his life. And he thinks the father had done nothing for him. But the father said to him, son, everything that I have is yours. So both the younger and the older brother were both lost. The father had to restore both of them. We know the younger brother accepted the restoration. We don't know about the older brother. We only hope that there was. But we do know that us and our older brother mentality have the opportunity because the father is pursuing us in our attitude, trying to restore us and let us know that everything he has is ours. If you go to the next slide, please. If we don't understand our identity in Christ, there's no way we can reach out towards people because we're, we're not preaching the gospel message. So if we don't have that part right, we shouldn't be engaging in trying to reach the lost because guess what? I'm lost. If I don't understand my depravity, then I'm in desperate need of a savior. That I'm the guy that's waiting, that's coming back to him. If I don't think I'm that guy, either the older, the younger, the brother, if I don't understand his restoration of me, I have no way to move forward with him. If I don't repent of my independence and go towards dependence, I can't be used by him. If I don't understand who I am in Christ, that he's already made me a king and a priest, he's already given me an eternal inheritance, he's already made me secure, he's already satisfied every one of my needs. He's already given me everything I could possibly need for this life and for the next. But if I don't believe that to be true, then I'm just living a religious moral life, trying to earn my way to God. He has given us so much to give us complete security, complete satisfaction. He has defined what success is, which is dependence upon him. We do not need to pursue anything else. When I see this, I can abide in the vine. I can become the vine, and then fruit can be born from my life, from our lives, together, through abiding in the vine. Now, we talked about these three things, that every single person matters to God, that this is a process, and God is responsible for the results, and there's three barriers that every single person has to following Jesus Christ. It's the same three barriers that we have to going into the harvest field, because we're scared to death of what's going to happen. We're scared of losing relationships. We're scared that we're not competent. We're scared that we don't have the resources, the understanding, or the knowledge to be able to deal with someone's problems. Because we don't have compassion, we don't want to get into the messiness of someone's life. Anyone that has made the attempt to reach out into somebody's life that is seeking God knows it's a long process and it's extremely messy. We're broken, we're hurting. We're desperate for the need of someone to come running to us and to put on the cloak, put on the ring, and put on the sandals. But that process is long and messy. 
And unless we are willing to deny ourselves, pick up that cross and follow him, we'll miss out on the incredible experience it is when the Lord begins to touch somebody's life, when they move from death to life. That's part of enjoying the feast and part of enjoying his work here today and what he's going to be finishing in eternity when he does return, when someone asked, when is he coming back? Well, we know he's coming back and we know he's going to set up this feast for us. We know that we're his bride, all of us together, that are children and sons and daughters of God. If we can't, if we don't believe that to be true, we don't have a passion for that from the work that the Holy Spirit's done in our lives, we'll never want to move out into his harvest field. His harvest field will seem like duty and religious responsibility. It'll seem like one other thing I have to do to prove myself to be spiritual. If that's the way you feel, ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest to reveal to you what he's done in his pursuit for you. He is the Father running to you, waiting to put on his coat, waiting to put his ring on your finger, and waiting to put his sandals on your feet. Nothing that you have to do, nothing that I have to do. And from that, understanding who I am in Christ will be a powerful display of his work in our lives. This past week, sitting at lunch with one of the guys that works for me, he says, you know what? My dad used to be really religious, but he couldn't stand all the people that were there. The hypocrisy, the fake moralism, the total lack of authenticity. He says, my dad wants nothing to do with it. He's a secular humanist now, and that's what I am too. I said, you know what? I agree with you. I hate all that too. He's like, what do you mean? Yeah, nobody likes religious people. Why? Jesus, look what Jesus said to him. I started articulating what Jesus said to these guys. He's like, what do you mean? He said, yeah, no one, there's nothing about religion that Jesus talks about. He talks about a love for the people around him. He talks about people that understand who they are and their own depravity. He wants those people with him because they're the sick people that know they're sick. And there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one person that repents than over the 99 righteous. That's what happens in these stories when he's making the point in those three stories. There was something that was lost. There was a searcher to seek those people. Something was found. And then there was a celebration in heaven. And this guy's like, I want to hear about that. That's interesting. Then we had a, you know, he said, here's all my questions. He starts asking all his questions. And we immediately start going. And within five, seven minutes, this guy moves from a secular humanist to a seeker. I don't know what's going to happen. It's not my responsibility to convert this guy, but it is my opportunity to be a part of seeing what the Lord Jesus Christ is pursuing this guy. He brought this guy from Lebanon to China to hear the message of Jesus Christ. He's right next to the, the promised land, and he talks about it. He goes, I've seen all of it. I've seen every expression of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. But he's never heard the truth. He's never heard the gospel of the father running to the lost son and running to the older brother, to both of them. So, Father, we come to you today as both older brothers and younger brothers. As those that uh, 
are blown away that you pursued us. Each one of us can see a story in our life of you pursuing us, chasing us down, putting on your coat, putting on your ring, putting on your sandal so that we can never boast of anything of ourselves. The only thing we can boast on is the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And as we boast in that love, others will be drawn, and they wouldn't be helped to be drawn. And then, Father, you'll be able to allow us to see people come into the family, to be a part of the feast that you're preparing for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And, Father, if we're sitting here today and we're not broken by that, if we're not absolutely excited and passionate about wanting to give that away to others, Father, we know it's because we, there's something about understanding our identity in you that we have missed. We don't truly understand who you are. We ask for your supernatural revelation this moment. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out on each one of us. That we would understand the grace that you've given us. The love that you've displayed unconditionally. And that you can use us to give that away. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few.